0: Hi, everyone. I'm Kelly O'Horro. and this is Adaptable Behavior Explained. Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. This will be part two of how we work and why we show up the way that we do. So if you didn't watch part one, you need to stop right here. Go ahead and go back and watch part one of this, because this won't make a whole lot of sense if you don't. So in part one, we talked a little bit about and where we left off was Uh, About epigenetics, we talked about the root cause of our issues and why things get stored maladaptively encoded in our memories the way that they do and why today we show up with these presenting issues these chief complaints that we sometimes show up with and how those things can be problematic no longer useful and so now we're gonna talk a little bit about what happens in our body the neurophysiology and a little bit more about fight freeze flee and submit and so you see the graphic on your screen. This is one of my favorite illustrations to show a little bit about how we work. So we're mammals. We're all hardwired for specific actions. And so some of that depends on our environments. Some of that depends on our, uh, our epigenetics, like we talked about. If, we, if our family had a predisposition to shut down, we might be more of a shut down or freeze kind of person. Or we flee Like you see the bunny in the picture, or we freeze like the deer in the headlights when the car is coming on. Um, Or maybe we're like the tiger, we fight. Our adaptation is to power over, we don't lose, we make sure we're heard, and we stand up for ourselves. And there are gonna be reasons in our stories and in our epigenetics that contribute to whether we tend to be more of a fight, freeze, flee, submit kind of person. And so it's really important to understand that those are not linear. We don't always show up that way, but we tend to have a little bit more given certain stimulus in our environment. We tend to have one that is more of a predisposition. And so oftentimes when people come in to see us, they are, they are um, frustrated because, you know, my wife does something and I get so angry and I don't know why I lose my crap on her. And it's so frustrating. And then she shuts down and she avoids me and withdraws And then I feel shame. And so I got to figure out why I get so angry and why I do this. And so I need to get that under control. Or maybe, you know, I know I do a good job, but my boss comes to me and says, hey, I need you to refine this or do this again. And I freeze and I can't speak and I can't stand up for myself or I can't explain my position. Or maybe I just completely avoid something. Some people might flee when they're stressed out. So an example, I can talk about a case where uh, a client was disclosed that she, uh, her spouse had an affair and She just got in the car and drove to another state and she doesn't even remember the drive. So she literally fled the distress. So when you think about how we show up, we fight, freeze, flee, or submit. These are problematic behaviors when we're not in actual physical danger in the now. Uh, Something to talk about uh, that's important and I won't go into it too much, but trauma or traumatically informed responses are basically a time orientation issue. We are emotionally confused because of the stimulus that we're presented in the now. And we have a feeling flashback. We are in emotional confusion and we are basically time traveled in our bodies back to a time that is before now. So we're in a time orientation moment and we're in a feeling flashback when we are presented with stimulus that is like in nature, that reminds us of something that happened in our past. Like I talked about in the last episode or the last, uh, in part one about the, the little girl who crashes on the bike. She's time-oriented back to the past when I'm going to get in trouble because I crashed something. So we want, we want to understand that we have these natural predispositions, and it's very fast. And so I'm going to show you a kind of an example. This is a Dan Siegel model. This is a brain, and we use this brain to show, and I show my clients this all the time. If this were my brain, and I have my prefrontal cortex... This is where I am responsible for my rational, problem-solving, prior knowledge, bringing prior knowledge forward. It's reasonable, and it's slow. And inside our brain, we've got our limbic system. And this limbic system is our parasympathetic, our sympathetic nervous system, and our amygdala. And our amygdala is the alarm for our brain and our body. And it's always on. And it's scanning. What do I see, smell, taste, feel, sense? smell, taste, feel, sense. It's going all the time. And we can trust our amygdala to give our body the information that there's something that's threatening. And what happens when our amygdala senses or perceives threat, our prefrontal cortex goes totally offline. We flip our lid. And that experience is 1 million times faster than anything that we can think about. And it triggers our brainstem, our most primal part of our brain, into that fight, freeze, flee, or submit. So again, we're faced with stimulus that's stressful to our body. Our amygdala perceives it as threatening. Our prefrontal cortex goes completely offline. We flip our lead. We're no longer present in the now and we're into action and our brain goes really fast. So an example to illustrate that and why it's by design biologically, imagine if you're driving down the road and you see a ball roll into the street. You don't think Oh my gosh, if I don't slow down and slam on my brakes, then I'm liable to hit a child that might be following that ball. And that would be so tragic and terrible and sad. And I will feel guilty for the rest of my life. And what would happen to those parents? It will be just devastating. No, it's far too slow. So we slam on our brakes, our foot goes into action, and we move faster than anything we can think about. And that's by design so that we can, can keep ourselves safe. And it's a survival strategy. The bad part about that is it doesn't like reset. So, for example, if a, a deer were drinking in a lake and they were threatened because a predator came by and they had to run off, it's over for them. They come back to that lake and they'll drink again like it's the first time. We would be looking around. What if there's a what if there's a predator? What if there's threat? We we don't process our data the same way that certain species do and so things stay stuck and this is not helpful because it's tied together with a sensory input then when we're presented with that stimulus again we, we act as if it's happening again. So where that sensory input, it's correct, it, that information goes directly to our limbic system, and then our prefrontal cortex goes offline. So this is important to understand. If you even think about judging your reaction to something that's traumatically informed, it's impossible. It would be too slow if we had an opportunity to decide rather than react. And so with the kind of therapy that we do, EMDR therapy, we slow our bodies down enough to have space between that stimulus and the response so that we can show up more adaptively. Now that doesn't mean that you're going to be slow in all given circumstances because we wouldn't want that. We would want our bodies to remain fast enough to keep us safe. And so uh, it just means that things are not threatening right now. Don't necessarily inform us to react in the same way. So for example, You know, I'm not going to do EMDR and then suddenly not be able to slam on the brakes if I see a ball crossing the street. That's not how it works. But we can get the maladaptively encoded memories that are negatively informing behaviors today. We can clear those up. And that's where the freedom is. And that's what's really exciting. So this next picture is, I I really love to help illustrate how the way I see it and the way it anecdotally appears to me with clients is that when we get overwhelmed with stimulus and we've just had a buildup, a buildup, a buildup of things that have happened in our lives, we end up having kind of a capacity issue. And so trauma is a capacity issue. We are given these bodies. They can hold only so much, much like the glasses that you see in this picture. And so we really don't start off as a blank slate, like like I talked about. Uh, With epigenetics, we do come into this world with some material that's already in our body that that is probably needing to be taken care of or reprocessed. So when you look at that picture on the left of that glass, you see there's already some material in that glass. And people who have that much taken away from their capacity are usually functioning pretty well. But then as you look to the glass on the right, More things happen. Maybe i moved. Maybe I lost my pet. Maybe um, I was bullied in school. Or maybe my parents got divorced. And as you see, things that happen in our lives start to take away our capacity. So like that third glass on the left, now maybe I was cut from the basketball team. Or maybe I failed a test that I studied really hard for. Or maybe my mom screams at me all the time. Or maybe she doesn't ever scream, but she just criticizes me. Everything that i do i can't i can't do anything without some kind of criticism i can't do anything without her saying, Oh, why did you do it that way, or you should do it this way, or why didn't you try it this way or it would be better if we do it that way so maybe i'm constantly criticized, and that starts to take away or chew away at my capacity, or maybe something really big that's obvious happens like a bad car crash or a physical injury or or my parents get divorced or um you know, I have a family member that struggles with mental illness. And so the family focuses on that person all the time and I'm really left behind. And that's chronic and it's over time. And it just we it whittles away at my capacity. So oftentimes people wait too long to get help. They come in and their glasses look like the glass on the right. They're just maxed. That that's the person that walks in and they say, I, I just don't have any left. I am out of capacity. I'm maxed out. And they come in to help. And what I would love and what I hope that people gain from learning from, from this show is that we shouldn't be waiting. You know, you don't go to the dentist once your mouth is full of cavities. You don't. you, you shouldn't be waiting until your life is falling apart before you go get help. We really need to be getting our checkup from the neck up we really need to be tuning into our brain that is the governor of all behavior and and it manages all of our body systems we we shouldn't be waiting you, can you imagine what it what the world would look like if we waited until our teeth were all rotten before we went and had our dental cleanings no we we go regularly we go every 6 months to get our teeth cleaned so that we avoid Uh, you know, mouth full of decay and disease. And unfortunately, because of the historical stigma with mental health, we wait until so much is bad before we go get help with our life and our emotional needs and our life skills. And so when you think about your capacity, you want to understand where are you? And this is just an illustration to help measure where are you in your own ability to tolerate distress in the world? And as we talk about that capacity, what we realize is it takes its toll. When our body is riddled with stress hormones, with the adrenal response, it's not meant to be chronic. It's not meant to be all the time. It's meant to be in bursts, to give us the energy that we need. It's meant to be uh, to help us keep ourselves safe and to prevent ourselves from being in harm or in danger. And then it's meant to come down. Well, people who have lived uh, and had stories where there's so many bad things that have happened they run out of capacity, or they they operate kind of on that middle glass where there's not a lot of capacity. And then what ends up happening is their body takes a toll. There's a great book by Bessel van der Kolk that I highly recommend. Uh, it's called The Body Keeps the Score, and it does a great job of illustrating how if we spend our energy avoiding our emotional life, our body will win. It always does. And so oftentimes people will come in because they've seen, um, medical doctors and they have gastrointestinal issues or they have reproductive issues. They have performance issues and they don't have any physical reasons for having, you know, um, performance issues. Maybe they have libido issues. So it affects our reproductive system. Maybe they have pulmonary issues, cardiac issues, Uh, gastro issues are really common because 90% of our neurotransmitters are in our gut. And so most gastro issues are tied to unresolved emotional distress or unprocessed emotional experiences where people just keep it in, keep it in, keep it in. And then we end up with gastro issues, you know? And so I don't want people to wait until they have physical issues and they no longer can ignore it. I'd love people to learn that it's okay to be more proactive to take the reins on their mental health because it affects everything in their bodies. Because our bodies will win. Our bodies will take the brunt of the damage. Our bodies will tell us, uncle, you know, maybe there's chronic pain. Maybe there's migraines. Maybe there's um, back pain because you've literally carried the world on your shoulders your whole life. And your brain is firing data that says it's too much. I can't I can't um, hold it anymore. And our body's acting as if. And this goes with with traumatic incidents that are physical in nature as well. So people say, you know, my doctor, I had surgery on my back. I had an injury from a car accident. And the doctor says everything physically is fine. But for some reason, I'm still suffering with pain or I'm still struggling with, with uh, physical issues. And it feels like it's not healed. Well, when you think about... Uh, how our brains work. We actually are firing data that says protect. And so if I was in a car accident and I don't have my, my body is not updated with when to brace and when to be tight, and I'm doing it unnecessarily all the time, as if I'm still trying to protect myself from an issue or an incident, my back doesn't know it's okay. It's over. It's time to settle it down. And we learned really amazingly about the brain body connection and how our brain kind of needs an update. On actually, uh, veterans who had phantom limb pain. And basically, they were saying, My hand hurts, my hand hurts, well after the amputation. And what they learned through EMDR therapy is if I reprocess the event where I, I, I had my arm w- uh, was injured in an explosion and therefore I had to have it amputated, and I reprocess the emotional and the sensory input that was stored with that experience, my brain can know it's over. I don't need to hurt anymore. And that pain goes away. So now that hand doesn't hurt. And so it's an obvious way to learn this because there's no hand. The hand doesn't hurt. That can't be it. But the brain is firing as if there's still something wrong in that injury. So the brain is so powerful. It's in charge of everything. And ultimately, it's the computer that runs every single system in your body. And so please don't wait to address things until you have physical issues. Make sure you go understand that the computer might need some reset in order to tell your body that things are okay and that it's safe. And then what happens when we've had so many issues that are overwhelming, that are chronic, that are distressing, and our one self can't tolerate it? We end up needing to adapt in ways that are not necessarily useful. So uh, in, um, in some jobs, we, we actually really benefit from a bit of compartmentalization. A lot of times people consider dissociation something that is a pathological, but we all dissociate to a degree. Think about how many times you've driven down the freeway and you don't even remember passing you know, an exit sign or the street that you were meant to turn on because you were just kind of somewhere else and you were present enough to recognize if a car came into your lane that you could, you know, you could swerve to get out of the way, but you kinda weren't there. You were there, but you weren't there. Or in certain professions, we call it kind of peak performance dissociation where everything is out. I'm right here zeroed in. I'm a first responder. I'm a doctor, I'm a surgeon. I can't be thinking about the fight I got in with my with my wife this morning. I need to be right here. I don't have room for margin of error. So I need to be super focused, compartmentalized. And so we call that kind of almost a peak performance dissociation. It serves me. The problem is it's not meant to be chronic. It's meant to be temporary. So for example, if let's say I'm I'm an anesthesiologist and there is no room for error in my job. And I spend nine hours a day in peak performance dissociative state. Where I have to be perfect, there is no room for error, I have to be exacting, I can't be flexible, there is no black, there is only black and white, there is no gray, and then I come home and I don't shift out of that space. And now I expect everybody to be perfect in my home. There is no room for error. I'm really hard on the people around me because there is no room for error in most of my waking hours. So if I don't learn that dissociative state and that it needs to change because there's a time and a place, it creates problematic uh, experiences in my relationships, and that's not useful. So we want to understand that those states of dissociation are necessary. Oftentimes, they were the only thing that we learned to do based on how we uh, experience things. Uh, for example, let's say I, I grew up in a home where my parents were checked out. I wasn't really um, supported Maybe I had to really become really resourceful and independent and autonomous. And as a result, I became hyper-independent. And as I grow up, I don't lean on anybody. I don't need to lean on anybody. I've got this. But then I get married and my partner says, why don't you ever lean on me? Why won't you let me be your partner? And then I say, I got it. I'm good. That's a hyper-independent trauma response. It's an adaptation that was learned but it's no longer useful. And that part of me that always has to be in charge, that always has to fix something, that always has to, to have it and not lean on others, that part is a little bit of a dissociative experience. And that part of self is not serving me in certain circumstances. So we need to understand that we all have parts of self. Uh, the movie Inside Out is great to talk about that. I know we, uh, we, we talk about that in the emotions episode. And um, that that part of self is really important to recognize that those shift and they're all necessary and useful, but they may need to shift out when uh, when no longer useful or appropriate. So another way to talk about dissociation or uh, parts of self is is a little bit from a developmental perspective. So when we think about how we grow up and when really bad things happen to us, we end up getting a little bit thwarted emotionally, socially, and developmentally. Parts of us kind of get locked in trauma time. And so another way I like to illustrate this, and you'll see a visual representation um, in this in the screen below there, is I'll line these little stacking dolls up, and you can get them on Amazon or, or whatever else if you find this a useful metaphor for you, that I'll line all these little guys up and I'll have my clients look at them and I'll say, listen, I want to make sure you understand that I need to treat the whole person. And we can't leave anybody behind. And so if you think you just want to come in and talk about, listen, I want to talk about my adult life. I don't want to talk about my childhood. I don't, that's over. I've processed it. It's in the past. I don't need to deal with that. I'm here to tell you that I wish that I could treat you as if that isn't true, but it's just not because everything we've ever experienced informs how we are today. And I can, in good conscience, leave any part of us behind So if, for example, you say to me, I I freeze, I shut down, I'm going to look at you and I'm going to say, how young do you feel? And you might go, gosh, I feel like I'm 12. And so if my little stacking dolls are up, I'm like, hey, we're 12. So we need to go back on a bit of a rescue mission and figure out what happened when you were 12 that made you shut down and freeze. And so we can't leave any of our parts behind. And it helps us to understand developmentally a little bit about how we got stuck or how we got thwarted in time. And so that can be a little bit of a visual representation because uh, we just cannot leave anybody behind. We cannot ignore the experiences that we had in our life and pretend like they didn't help to shape and inform who we are. And so I think it's, it's important that you recognize your whole story really does matter. And I am really interested in you exploring that deeply and truly and thoroughly. So as a recap, today we talked about Our limbic system and how we fight, freeze, flee, submit, or shut down. We talked about trauma as a capacity issue and how we run out of capacity and it takes its toll on our body. And we talked about our brain being the computer for our body systems and how our body takes the toll. We talked about when that's too much, we have states of self that are, although they were meant to be temporary, end up chronic and long term. And so We have parts of us that kind of split off a little bit from our adult higher self and how we can't leave any parts of us behind that got stuck in trauma time and how we need to make sure we catch up and connect up all parts of self. Thank you everybody for tuning in. Please make sure that you like and subscribe and pay it forward by sharing this with someone that you think would benefit. And don't forget to lead with love. It'll never steer you wrong.